Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Good morning. Song, some of you are getting excited during that song. Our salvation ought to be something to be excited about, isn't it? Because when you think about where you were and where you could be, uh, you know, in light, of, uh, in light of what Christ has done for us. Uh, the problem is this, and that is that not everyone in the world knows that. And there are people who foundationally reject the Bible being God's Word. And that's why it's very important that, that we do series like this from time to time, kind of an apologetics-type sermon to uh, help people understand why you can believe the authority of the Bible, why you can believe the Bible is, in fact, God's Word. I think it's important enough that we're kind of under a little bit of spiritual attack uh, in trying to do this series. Uh, today, John had already uh, addressed it for most of you. Some of you uh, come in a little bit uh, late and might have missed it, but we had a bulb blow on this side, and John ordered it, trying to overnight it and get it here, and it didn't get here uh, in, in time. So we've kind of turned the screens to the side, and then I put together a document that I don't normally do with uh, pretty much all the fill-in-the-blanks for you, except a couple, because when I get into the message, a little bit on into the message, uh, dealing with some prophecies uh, concerning Christ, I want to do a little bit of a reveal for you. I didn't want it just to be there where you could look ahead and see it and it lose the impact. And that's why we've got this white board uh, on stage to where I can do that this morning. But uh, if you've been paying any attention at all as a Christian over the last few years, you know without any doubt the, uh, the church is under attack, the Bible is under attack, uh, the, the deity of Christ is under attack. And the reason why it's so important that we believe the Bible is that this foundationally is where we find out about Jesus. You know, this is what gives us uh, the message of salvation. And we don't need to uh, walk around having questions about whether or not we think it really is the Bible. And and we need to be equipped ourselves to have our faith built up uh, by knowing it's the Bible. We need to teach it to our children. We need to hold it up before our churches. And you're going to be engaged with people out in culture uh, probably more often than you like in this day and time that completely reject the Bible as being true. They think it's just a book of fairy tales. So that's why I, I want to try and equip you some through this series. And while some of it might seem like you've been dropped into a seminary class, you know there's good things about that also because you can learn some things you need for your life and to address um, with with other people. Uh, Some of our small groups are going through a book that Erwin Lutzer uh, wrote entitled Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible. And I've taken the the titles of the chapters in that book and I kind of built them into messages for this series. Up to this point... We've talked about, first of all, a logical reason to believe the Bible. Now, a logical reason to believe the Bible is one that the skeptics out there want to throw away instantly because they'll say, well, that's circular reasoning. You can't really take what the Bible says about itself as evidence that it is God's Word. But as I've told you each and every week, there are things you would not know about me and there are things I would not know about you, no matter how much we investigate each other, unless we forward it to ourselves, you know, unless we told. And so Christianity is a revealed religion. God has revealed things to us. So it is proper for us to look at the Bible and see what the Bible says about itself. And the Bible clearly says it's God's word over 1500 times. It says it's God's word. 
uh, as we look at the scriptures. Last week we looked at a, a historical reason, a historical reason. In other words, we kind of looked at some archaeology and, and things and saw that uh, different digs and discoveries they have found over the years that, that support the scriptures, that support the, the truth of the Bible. T- today, our third step is this. We're going to look at prophecy. So we're going to look at a prophetical reason why you can believe the Bible. And, and as we see uh, in abundance of prophecies that have been fulfilled, and I'll tell you guys up front, it's impossible, completely, totally possible for us to talk about all the prophecies that have been fulfilled. So I'm going to give a sample of some today uh, for you. But as we look at these prophecies, it, it ought to be enough to help the person that's the, the most skeptical concerning the Bible to really think that, well, hey, just maybe there's something to this Christianity stuff. But maybe there's just something to uh, what the Bible has, uh, has to say. So we take steps in that direction. I, I want to point out for you to begin with this morning some differences between worldly prophecy or really worldly predictions and biblical prophecy. And the reason I feel like I need to point out those distinctions before we actually look at fulfilled prophecies is this. There are a lot of people in the world today that will claim to be prophets. There are, are stories and, and things you'll hear on your cable shows and, and all that will talk about this person having given that prophecy and this person having given that this type of prophecy. So I want to use an example of, of Nostradamus. Uh, not that I want to talk about him, but I'm using him as an example because if you watch the History Channel, some other cable shows very often, uh, they'll run things through pretty regular about him. And, and, and man, people will go cuckoo for cocoa puffs over over Nostradamus you know it's, it's like they'll they'll just get all giddy about that stuff and, and, and think about man how great that is but I think when we compare today some things that people claim he predicted to what the Bible clearly predicts you'll see the distinction and the difference between the two now, now let me give you a couple things about him he grew up in France he died back in the 1500s uh, in France he, uh, he would say this uh, about himself. He, he would say that, that his prophetic process was like this. I emptied my soul, brain, and heart of all care and attained a state of tranquility. Now, I'm going to warn you up front. You start putting yourself in that position, you're going to hear some voices probably, and it won't be God's voices if you start putting yourself in, in, in that situation. It's like he was trying to go into a trance. Now, I've just got a plain old chair up here, so I guess this is my problem that I have today because he had a special tripod that he would lean against and sit upon as he was trying to go into that trance uh, and, and hear these prophecies. And he claimed that it was angle, the exact angle of the Egyptian pyramids. So maybe if I had one of those, I could be more of a prophet today, but I've just got an old chair up here, but that's, that's what he had claimed. Let me read to you one of his prophecies and, and show you uh, I think a clear distinction in a moment between a worldly type prophecy and biblical prophecy. Here's one of the prophecies that he wrote down in, in the year that is to come. By the way, he experimented a lot in the occult also in astrology and things like that. But in the year that is to come soon and not far from Venus, the two greatest ones of Asia and Africa shall be said to come from the Rhine in Easter. Crying in tears shall be at Malta and on the Italian shore. Now, people who have interpreted what he said after this, they say this. They say that the word Easter is a prophecy of Hitler. I don't get that. I don't see Hitler's name there. Do you see Hitler's name there? 
Matter of fact, there's another version of this same prophecy where he refers to a river. You see, the Rhine is a river, and he refers to a river in another prophecy uh, that's addressing the same type of thing. I just don't see Hitler's name. Now, I want you to bear in mind, you have to really, really stretch at that. Now, when we get into some biblical prophecy, you're going to see that God called the name of people before they were even born. And, and, and he, he wasn't just, uh, you know, putting a smoke screen up or something. Someone says, well, I think it means that or I think it means this. No, he clearly called the name of some people before they were even born. And that ought to be some clear evidence for us about, about the Bible. Now, now, I want you to also, as we think about these distinctions between worldly predictions and, and biblical prophecy, I want you also to notice some, some warnings kind of that, that's given uh, about prophecy or maybe some biblical standards for what prophecy should be. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to, to notice that, that God uh, in the Bible has some standards for biblical prophecy. And it's not met by, by some of these worldly predictions that people you know, go so crazy over in this, in this day and time. Uh, Isaiah 47, verse 12 through 14. Uh, Isaiah is, is right, and he's prophesying here against Babylon. And here's what he says. Stand fast in your enchantments, in your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Now, let me stop just for a minute. I think maybe that describes our culture today. But because we're trying to go this direction and that direction, hear this voice and hear that voice, and, and, and I think people are just worn out by all these counsels that they're trying to gather instead of go to God's Word that they ought to go to. And he goes on and he says, Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons made known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like the stubble. Uh, the, the fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to set before. So, so God through Isaiah is more or less saying, you know, you keep holding on to, the, to this witchcraft more or less. And, and he's saying it's not going to get you anywhere because it's not true what they're proclaiming. It'll be burned up by fire. Now, now Deuteronomy also gives us a, a, a warning that he gave to his own people, that God gave to his own people concerning a prophet. Deuteronomy 13 Verse 1 through 5 says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. And then I put some of this in bold because I wanted you to pay attention to it. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Now, this next statement is pretty tough, but look what the Bible says. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. And down at the bottom of it there, it says, so you shall purge evil from your midst. Another statement in Deuteronomy says another really tough statement in, in chapter 18, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word of my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that 
same prophet shall die. Now, that's a tough statement, but it's part of the Bible. It's part of the Word of God that's there. In, in essence, you're, you're seeing God say, all this is, is just made up stuff. And these prophets might get it right every now and then. He, he said, if someone predicts something, they dream something, and some of it comes to pass, don't listen to them when they say, let's go after other gods. They might get it right part of the time. But here's the deal. God gets it right all of the time. Not part of the time. He gets it right all of the time, 100%. So let, let's go on from talking about uh, some of the differences there between worldly predictions and biblical predictions. And, and let's move on to talk about some evidences of biblical prophecy. Now, before I, I kind of go into some specific ones, I want you to see in, in general terms something that, that God says here in, uh, in Isaiah 46, verse 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Notice what he says here. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. In other words, God is saying, before something ever comes to pass, before anyone else could ever know about it, I can claim that it's going to happen. I can say that it will come about before it ever does. Then he goes on and he says, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, uh, the, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. So God is clearly saying that what he says, even in future, will come to pass. Now let's look at some examples of that. We don't have time to, to, to look at all of them, as I said earlier, but there's some pretty significant examples that we need to look at. The first one deals with some prophecies of Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus winds up being the, the king of Medio Persian Empire. But there's some specific prophecies about him that I think will give us a lot of evidence that God knew what he was talking about. That God said things before they ever came about. Now I want you to notice, we're going to be in Isaiah as we look at this, but I want you to notice the source of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah 44 verse 24, the Bible says this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Time and time again, the Bible says, thus says the Lord. I told you the first Sunday, there's some 1,500 times, I've already alluded to it today once, some 1,500 times that the Bible says, God said this. This is God's word in, in more or less different terms. But I want you to look at some specifics that, that Isaiah says here in, in his prophecy, some very specific things that, that he writes. Uh, in Isaiah 44, Isaiah wrote this. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins? Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers? Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid? 
Now, I want you to notice, he calls the king of the future. It wasn't even a, a, an empire yet. Of the future media Persian empire, he calls the king by name. Now, I'll get into some more specifics dealing with that in, in, just, a, in just a second. But in, in those verses, Isaiah foretells about three things. And, and he's talking... Past tense, after the children of Israel had been carried away to Babylon. He addresses the city of Jerusalem and Judea, and he says they're going to be built back. He addresses the temple, and he says the temple itself is going to be built. He's saying this after it was destroyed. While the children of Israel are carried away, he's saying a prophecy years in advance that this will take place. All of this will be rebuilt after it's been destroyed, after the children of Israel have been carried into, into bondage. And then he gives a specific name of the king who will give the decree that will let the children of Israel return. Isaiah 45 verse 1 says this, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, once again, you don't have to play around with the letters like you had to with Nostradamus a minute ago about Easter and think, well, that must mean Hitler. He, he's clearly saying who he's talking about. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. So God is saying, I'm setting apart this guy by the name of Cyrus to do my will. I, I'm setting him aside to be someone that's going to come through and conquer all these other nations. In fact, he's also going to conquer the Babylonian Empire. Uh, he will be the one that will come in and attack them and, and conquer them. He says this to Cyrus, we're told in, in Isaiah 45, verse 2 through 6. He says this to Cyrus in, or, in, in advance before Cyrus was ever born. I'll, I'll deal with the specifics of that in a minute ago, in just a minute. But he says this about Cyrus, so when it happens, Cyrus will know that God is God. He, he also says this about Cyrus, that he will call him as his shepherd and take him by his hand, so other people in the world will know that God is God. Now here's why I say that. Look at, look at verse 45. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and, and, and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That I might all hand out documents more. I can tell you're paying attention. You all flip the page at the same time. <laughs> I, I equip you that you do not, that, though you do not know me. Notice this: that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west. Uh, and that there is there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Now, just to boil that down, God is saying through Isaiah, in advance of it taking place, Cyrus is going to be my servant. I'm saying in advance, so he'll wind up knowing when it happens that I'm the one that caused this to take place. 
and to give evidence to the rest of the world that I'm God and there's no other God beside me. Okay? Now, then that's pretty cool, but here's the important stuff. God named Cyrus by name. 100 years, a little bit over 100 years before Cyrus was ever born. Now, guys, to me, that's just impressive. I mean, if you, if you want some additional evidence to believe the Bible, and here it can be historically proven that God named him by his name before he ever was born. In fact, at the time Isaiah is giving these prophecies, the Babylonian Empire is just starting to be an empire. At the time he gives part of these other prophecies, Persia was just kind of starting to, to formulate a little bit. It wasn't anywhere near being like a nation or an empire yet at the time that Isaiah gave these prophecies. The reason I think that's impressive is that we can't even predict four years from now who's going to be president, can we? The news media thought they could. Man, they were convinced. They all got it wrong. Can you tell me who's going to be president in four years? You might think you can, but you can't. I, I, right now, I can't even tell you for sure what I'm going to eat for lunch tomorrow. <laughs> but, but God, 100 years before Cyrus is even born, he names him as being the one that's going to lead the media person empire and the one that will be the one who writes the decree, the king who writes the decree to allow the Jews to return back to Jerusalem. Historians agree that Cyrus ruled the Persian empire from, from uh, 559 to 530 BC and that he made the decree to set the Jews free in March 538 BC. And that means this, not only... Did God call Cyrus by his name a hundred years before he was born, 150 years before he ever assumed rule of the media Persian Empire, God said that he's going to write a decree to let my people go back to Jerusalem. A hundred and fifty years before he ever came into power in the media Persian Empire. Now, I don't know if it does it for you guys, and I know some of this seems like technical type stuff, maybe for some of you, but it sounds like you're paying attention by turning the page. I, I'm telling you something, this kind of stuff charges my spiritual batteries, amen? But because it, it gives me something beyond the Bible, I believe the Bible is all true, and that's all I need. But still, it's great to have something beyond the Bible that we can prove historically took place and is fulfilled exactly as God would say it would take place to, 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 help, to, to help maybe encourage our faith and to help equip us to stand for the Bible when other people will not. Now, it wasn't just Isaiah, but Jeremiah also gave some prophecies about the Jews being taken into captivity into Babylon and returning to the land after 70 years. He said this in chapter 25, the whole land shall become a ruin and waste and those nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And that's where the media Persian empire comes in. Uh, and in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity declares the Lord making the land an everlasting waste. Then in chapter 29, Jeremiah writes, this for thus says the Lord when 70 years are completed 
for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. Not only that, I want you to look and see what Ezra writes. Because Ezra writes saying, hey, exactly what Isaiah said and exactly what Jeremiah said comes to pass. Because here's what Isaiah, or here's what Ezra writes. In the first year of, guess who? Cyrus, (laughs) the king of where? You know, at the time Isaiah said it, it wasn't even a nation yet. That the word of the Lord... By the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. You see, he recognized how it happened. It had been prophesied in advance that it would happen. And and Cyrus is understanding what's taking place. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. It is, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. So all that takes place exactly like it was prophesied would happen. Let's move on to another Old Testament prophecy. There's a city in Lebanon by the name of Tyre. And uh, there's still a city in Lebanon, but it's not the same city, not in the same location whatsoever. You'll understand why in, in just a minute. Uh, it was a, a fortified uh, city. It was located uh, on the coast. But then there's also an island about three-quarters of a mile out in the body of water uh, that was part of the city. And they had more or less... When Israel had fallen, made fun of Israel. Like, man, we're going to profit from this and everything. So here's what God said to them, to Tyre, in Ezekiel. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, and look, it's like they're making fun. Ah, the gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, because they were making sport of Israel, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea in a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Next slide. And, and she shall come, in, in Ezekiel 26, 1 through 6, and she shall become plunder for the nations. And her daughters uh, on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So the same one that went in and destroyed Jerusalem and carried the Jews away, God's saying, guess what? I'm sending him to your door next. And he's going to go to the city of Tyre. He said, king of kings, with horses and chariots, and with a horseman and a host of many soldiers, he will kill with a sword your daughters on the mainland, and he will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. 
He will direct the, the, the shock of the, of the battering of his rams against your walls and will, with his axes will break down your towers. So more or less, here's the prophecy that Ezekiel's given. Because of the way Tyre responded toward Israel, God is saying, I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar in and I'm pretty much going to wipe you off. And, and I'm even going to put your, your city into the sea and, and, uh, and, and, and we'll be, we'll be dumped there. And in Ezekiel 26, Verse 12 through 14, let me keep reading there. He says, they will plunder your riches and and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses, your stones and timber and soil. They will cast in the midst of the waves, and I will stop the music of your songs and the sound of your lyres uh, shall be heard no more. And I will make you a bare rock, and you shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt. For I am the Lord, I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now, let's have a little bit of a history lesson to see how all this came about. God said that he's going to send Nebuchadnezzar there. He did just that. Nebuchadnezzar waged a war on the mainland part of the city for 13 years. And he destroyed the city, pulled the walls down, left everything in, you know, in, in, in just ruins. Some of the people, however, were able to get in some boats and escape over to the island that's about three-quarters of a mile out in the water. By this point, Nebuchadnezzar gets bored with things. And he thinks, well, I've already proved my point. I'm not going to go out there and, and try and attack the island now. We've already been 13 years here attacking the city, so he goes on. So it seems like not all the prophecy is going to take place. But a little bit over 200 years later... There's a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. You heard of him before? Alexander the Great is on his way to Egypt to attack Egypt. He's already conquered many other cities. And has, he's going by Tyre, even though it's just out there on the island. He thinks to himself, I don't want them to have a chance to try and come around behind us and, and attack us as we're going to Egypt. So I'm going to take time to fight this island and, and defeat the island. So here's what he did. He had his soldiers take all the stones, all the timbers, all the rubble, even the soil in the city, and push it into the water, gradually making a mound going out toward the island. (laughs) That's exactly what Ezekiel said would take place, to where he could attack the island. On top of that, Ezekiel had also said, God had said, I'm going to bring many nations against you. Up to that point, that had not happened. But now, Alexander the Great, who's defeated all of these other nations, he is now in charge of those nations. Those nations have ships, they have navies, and he has those other nations to come and bring their ships to do warfare against the island city of Tyre. They completely destroy it, they tear it all down. It has never, ever been rebuilt. Isaiah said it's going to be nothing more than a flat rock. To where people, where the fishermen will, will, will dry out their nets. And folks, that is exactly what has happened still yet today. The city of Tyre has never been rebuilt. And fishermen, even today in that region, go and put their nets out on those rocks for them to dry. Ezekiel said it would happen. Hundreds of years before it happened. And God fulfilled exactly what Ezekiel had predicted. Once again, that charges my spiritual batteries. Daniel, 
also, and I'm not going to cover all of them about, about Daniel, but Daniel predicted the Persian Empire. He predicted the, the Greece becoming an empire, and he predicted Rome becoming an empire. He predicted all of those. But he also said this, And behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king, talking about Alexander the Great. As for that horn that was broken, in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Two hundred years before Alexander the Great died, Alexander the Great did not have any offspring to carry on his heritage. So what happened was this. When he died, his kingdom is divided in four by the four different generals that were following him. And Daniel said it would happen 200 years before it happened. And that's exactly what took place. Now, there's some other passages you can read there, some other prophecies that that Daniel uh, gave also, even one about the Antichrist coming. But Bible scholars estimate in Daniel chapter 11, in that one chapter alone, there are 135 prophecies in that one chapter. Now, all that's Old Testament. Let's get to something I really want to talk about this morning. I mean, I've loved all that stuff. But let's talk about prophecies concerning the Messiah. Prophecies concerning who Jesus is. Jesus said this to a religious crowd. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he's saying, you, you guys think, well, if I just read this, if I obey the law, if I do that, if I do this, I'll have eternal life. But Jesus pointed out they're missing something. <laughs> because Jesus said this, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, if you're reading through Erwin Lusser's book in, in your small group, he lists a few examples. I'm going to add to his examples and give you more. We are not going to look at those verses. It would be totally impossible to look at those verses. But in the notes that you have, you can go home and enjoy that yourself. You can read the prophecy. You can read the fulfillment of it in the New Testament. And you can go to the Old Testament and find out where it was predicted that it would take place. So it's a good Bible study for you to take home. But even though we're not going to read the verses, I want you to notice the things that did take place. The Bible said in Isaiah 7, 14, Jesus would be born of a virgin. We're told in Matthew and Luke's gospel that that's exactly what happened. Jesus had John the Baptist to prepare the way for him. That was predicted in Malachi chapter 3. We see that take place and fulfilled in Matthew. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 said that. Matthew chapter 2 fulfills it. Jesus rode a donkey entering to Jerusalem. Zechariah said that in chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew 21 gives us the fulfillment of that. We're even told about Jesus' attitude toward his persecutors. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says he goes as a sheep before his shears. Dumb, not responding, not saying anything back to them. But, and then we're told how he responded toward those who had persecuted him in Matthew 27. 
Jesus was betrayed by a friend. We're told that in Zechariah chapter 13. It takes place in Matthew 26. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's narrowing it down pretty much, isn't it? Didn't just say he's going to be betrayed for some money. He, he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And that was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11 and fulfilled in Matthew 26. The 30 pieces of silver would be ultimately used to purchase a potter's field whenever the money was taken back by Judas. And they said, well, you know, they're really righteous people, you know, those that want to put Jesus to death. And they said, well, we can't take that. That's blood money. We'll, we'll buy a potter's field for people to be buried in that don't have a place to be buried. The Bible said that that would happen. It was prophesied that that would take place in Zechariah 11. It takes place in Matthew 27. Jesus' feet and his hands were pierced. You can look at the other crucifixion scriptures plus Luke 24, 40, and it's prophesied in Psalm 22, 16. By the way, you've heard me say this over and over again. The crucifixion scene is depicted in the Psalms hundreds of years before the Roman Empire ever thought of it as a way to execute anyone. We're also told in multiple scriptures from Psalm 22 being fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. That was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 9. It takes place in Matthew 27. Jesus rose from the dead without his body experiencing decay. Psalm 16, 10 tells us that would happen. It's alluded back to in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That was prophesied in Psalm 110. It's referred back to in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. That's just a sampling. That is just a sampling of prophecies that have been fulfilled. Now, a few years ago, uh, I used this as a point, as an illustration, to talk to you about the, the deity of Christ uh, without giving you all the background to it. There's a guy uh, by the name of Peter Stoner who wrote a book called Science Speaks. He was chairman of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College. Later, he became the chairman of the science department of Westmont College. In part of his book, Stoner made mathematical analysis of the prophecies of the Messiah and Jesus Christ fulfilling them. Years later, Dr. Harold Hartzler, who is uh, the American, with the American Scientific Affiliation, stated that the mathematical statistics used by Stoner follow thoroughly sound principles of prob probability applied in proper and convincing ways. Now, in his statistics that he ran, he only considered eight prophecies. He, he said that the odds of only eight prophecies being fulfilled in any one person's life or the odds that I'm about to give you. Now, you've got a blank in your notes where you can write this down. I think it's worth writing down. Now, I'm not through yet, but odds one in a hundred kind of sound like, you know, pretty big odds, doesn't it? Odds one in a hundred thousand. That sounds like pretty good odds. You know, that to me would sound really strong that you just take eight prophecies of the Messiah about the Christ and the odds that any one person would fulfill all eight of those if it were to be one in 100,000. That would get my attention. But if you're writing this down, 
unless I miscounted as I'm writing, and I might well have done that because I'm not a mathematics major. But if you're writing that down, you need to write down 17 zeros. That's the odds that any one person could fulfill only eight of the prophecies about the Messiah. That's the odds. Now, if you want that in different terms, that's one in 100 quadrillion. And that's beyond the realm of being even statistically possible, is what they would tell you. Now, to illustrate it to where it maybe would shock you a little bit more and confirm your faith a little bit more and open your eyes up a little bit more to the truth of the Scriptures, Stoner, the mathematician that came up with these stats, also did this. Same odds, only eight prophecies fulfilled in one person's life. He said these statistical odds would be the same, would be the equivalent of doing this. Covering the state of Texas knee-deep with silver dollars. So you've got the whole state of Texas knee-deep in silver dollars. On one silver dollar, you put a black check on it, and you mix it in with all those silver dollars. Then you send a man out with a blindfold over his eyes. And he goes out into the state of Texas, knee-deep of silver dollars, And he goes out and his very first selection happens to be the one with the check mark on it. Does that give you a little bit of information, a little bit of an idea how sure we are that Jesus is the Christ? Because the odds of any one person fulfilling only eight of those is described by that illustration that I just gave you. Now here's the rest of the stuff that ought to finish blowing your mind. Jesus didn't fulfill just eight prophecies. He has already fulfilled 353 prophecies. Now, you put that into some type of mathematical equation. If it's even possible, remotely possible to do so. See, I simply went through that to tell you what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And you can... Look at these stats that have been given by someone that wasn't necessarily setting out to prove the gospel at all. And he said, that's the odds. So that's the odds. That really tells us this. Jesus is it. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is authentic. Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. And things like this ought to just increase our faith. Now, you know, when I give you stuff like that, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why in the world isn't everybody a believer? <laughs> why, why, why hasn't everyone believed that Jesus is the Christ, that, that, that the Bible is true as it says it's true? Why, why not? You see, there, there are secular people who will make every last-ditch effort they can to deny the Bible being true. Because they don't want to be responsible and accountable to a creator. And they want to live their lives however they want to live their lives. So they have a predetermined mindset that none of this could be true. So here's their excuse. All of that was written after it happened. It made it look like it was written before it happened. The problem is, 
We have historical documents that can be proved to have been written 400 to 1,000 years before they were written. And we have this. The disciples who believed Jesus was the Messiah. The disciples who write about Him in the New Testament. When it came down to a choice and they were being threatened to be executed and to lose their lives. They died for what they believed. Now guys, I'm just putting myself in this scenario for a minute. If that were me, and I know people like to maybe, we'll pull a trick on everybody. You know, we'll have this big facade take place. I mean, we, we've seen it happen in our own day and time. People really get in trouble because they tried to pull off some, you know, some, some big fake thing. There was a, what was it, a, uh, I don't remember if it was an air balloon or what it was. It was supposed to have gotten away and supposed to have had maybe a, a kid in it or something a few years ago. And everyone's crazy about trying to find it. And then they find out it was all false. It was funny until the law showed up. <laughs> And they're being charged for filing all these fake reports. So, so I'm just telling you, this, this is just me. If I had been the disciples and I had made all this up trying to make it look like it had happened, you know, after the fact that it had been written beforehand, and I'm just trying to make all that up. And they're about to take my life and they say, you can own up to the fact that you made this up and live, or you can keep saying that it's true and die. I'm just telling you guys, if I'd made it up, guess what? <laughs> guys, I was just fooling with you. I'm sorry. But they didn't do that because they knew what they had seen and they knew what they had believed and they saw the resurrected Lord and they died for what they believed. So what does this all mean to us today? It really means this. You need to decide something. You need to decide if the Bible is the Word of God. You need to decide and you need to get it right when you decide whether or not Jesus is who He claims to be. Because you see, Jesus has fulfilled already 353 prophecies, but there are more prophecies on the way. Like He's coming back, and He's coming to take over, and He's going to rule and reign, and He's going to be the judge. And when you want evidence of future prophecy being true, look at what's been fulfilled in the past. The past has been fulfilled, predicts and guarantees the future fulfillment. So I'm telling you, Jesus is coming back. He's going to be your judge. And you need to decide today and get it right. Whether you believe the Bible is the Bible and whether you believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And that he did what he said he would do by dying on the cross for your sins. Now, as I have said every week in this series so far. I want to close by pointing to something Jesus said. Because this is a series where I'm dealing with a lot of logic. Yes, we're dealing with Bible, but I'm making a lot of logical arguments. You need to understand something. You can't be saved by logic. You have to be saved by faith. And, and I think what Jesus said here, it's not necessarily you get to choose when that happens either. Because he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not just on your whim. Jesus said, the Father has to draw you. 
And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, Jesus himself, saying, referring to himself. He has seen the Father. But then he makes this promise, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. You need to decide, and you need to get it right. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you. We celebrate that you make it so abundantly clear that we should be able to believe by faith all that you tell us in your word. We should be able to accept that we're sinners and confess our sin before you. We should be able to accept the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be and that he died on the cross for us and he screamed it is finished before he died. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this place today that's been been skeptical and they've been hiding behind their skepticism. They've been rejecting the fact that the Bible could be true. They've been rejecting the validity of the scriptures. They've been rejecting the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. Father, I pray you'll help them this morning. Help them to have faith. Yes, we've argued logic, but it's logic that people need to exercise faith in. Father, I pray you've given people evidence today to exercise faith. Father, from my heart and I think from these others that are gathered here that already know you, we thank you for the evidence you give us in your word. Help us during this invitation to have thankful hearts. Maybe even bow or come and kneel and pray and say, God, thank you for the evidence you've given for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.